Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 through 17. Whoever teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing, and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Dr. Jeff, thank you for reading our lesson this morning and what a privilege and honor it is to be with you all in worship. I don't know about you, but when I stepped across the threshold into the narthex today, um, I felt very privileged and very thankful to be a part of this congregation and especially to be in worship with you on this last Sunday in February. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for your prayer and for the prayers that we feel in this room as we struggle through uh, this challenging time in the life of the planet right now. It's an existential moment in many ways that has a way of putting perspective on life and on the things that often trouble us. Um, grateful to Mason and our praise team. Thank you for a thousand hallelujahs. What a wonderful, what a wonderful entrance into worship. And we look forward to Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday evening, when uh, I, for one, am grateful for a season 
of prayer and fasting. And Lord knows we need it at this time. And we hope that you'll be here as we begin a, a new series next week on the Gospel of Luke, following Jesus on the Via Dolorosa. We're going to call it Walk This Way. We're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, beginning with the temptation scene uh, next week. Uh, Zan Starnes is one of the one of my friends from way, way back, uh, Martin College, and she is here today. And Zan, it means a lot to see you. We're grateful to you. Uh, Zan's dad, Dr. Bill Starnes, was the president of Martin College when we were students there. And uh, it was great to have a connection to the president through Zan. We were students together. And I'll always be grateful for your daddy and what he meant to me uh, as a mentor. mentor. Well, friends, if you have been with us since the first part of January, you know that we're finishing up a series on Paul's epistle, Paul's letter as a mentor to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, uh, in that section, the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy. And Jeff has read for us the last chapter, uh, most of the last chapter of that letter. And we've been using the theme over these last seven weeks, love uncontaminated. And just as a reminder, where that phrase came from was from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, wherein Paul articulates or gives voice to the goal of the Christian mission that he was entrusting to young Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And I want to read that paraphrase again for you as we begin this morning. The whole point of what we're urging is simply love. Love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith. A life that is open to God. Those who fail to keep to this point soon wander off into dead ends of gossip. They set themselves up as experts on religious issues but haven't the remotest idea of what they're holding forth with such imposing eloquence, love uncontaminated. And the rest of the letter through six chapters really sort of spells out what love uncontaminated actually looks like. And we've been talking about that week one. It looks like stick-to-itiveness, perseverance. It looks like sound teaching, apostolic doctrine. It looks like persistent prayer for all, not just for my group, but for all. It looks like moral and ethical conduct. And then last week we talked about the fact that uncontaminated love looks like a deep sense of respect for others, especially those who are marginalized and vulnerable. The final chapter of this letter points out by the Apostle Paul what are the contaminants to love. What What are the pollutants or the toxins that wind up poisoning the mission of the church? And he spells it out. Things like arrogance, conceit, ignorance, a craving for controversy, verbal disputes. And from these, Paul, the apostle says, comes envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and conspiracy theories. And of course, the taproot underneath All of this is simply egotism. You remember my favorite definition of egotism. Egotism is a drug administered by nature to deaden the pain of being a fool. I love that definition. It was Thomas Carlyle who said, egotism is the source and summary of all faults 
and miseries. I mentioned a moment ago, I'm going to preach next week on the temptation scene from Luke 4, where right after Jesus' baptism, where his sonship, his identity was confirmed, Luke says that Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Satan had three ploys that he used to manipulate Jesus. And all three temptations were an attempt to get Jesus to use his power for his own benefit, to use his God-given gifts for his own welfare. Temptation, I suggest, at its crux is always the same. It is an attempt, it is an opportunity to glorify me, myself, rather than to obey God. I think that's why, by the way, that one of our core values as a church is that we're called to be Christ-centered. One of my life verses is Philippians 2, 5, where Paul says, have this mindset or have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be exalted, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant becoming obedient even unto death. I know it's something of a paradox today in our postmodern way of thinking, but it is true that self-fulfillment always comes through self-emptying. Self-aggrandizement, self-actualization comes through emptying ourselves, and self-centeredness always leads to self-destruction. I think that's not only true spiritually, I think it's true personally, emotionally, politically, I think it's true corporately, that when a person, a party, a caucus, a state, or a nation begins to act in self-serving ways, the result is always destructive. Now, isn't it true that we've seen this historically? We've seen this in every century, in every generation, and we're seeing it now in Ukraine that when a leader acts purely in the interest of his own power, solely in the interest of his own welfare and agenda, that it always leads to tyranny. It always leads to destruction. It was Thomas Paine who wrote in 1776, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, but it is conquered. Paul says in Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. When I think about what's happening uh, in Europe today, I, I was thinking about the book of Exodus because a couple of weeks ago on a study leave, I was studying the book of Exodus. We're gonna work on it together next fall, the fall of 2022. And there's a key verse in Exodus, chapter one, verse eight, where the whole thing, the whole story in scripture begins to take a lethal turn. And this is the verse. And there arose a new king in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. You remember Joseph. Joseph, one of the sons of Israel who had saved Egypt in the region from famine, who came second in command in Egypt, who helped to save the nation of Egypt from the famine. But over time, there came a new ruler who didn't know Joseph. And because he was ignorant of history, what did he do? He wound up marginalizing and enslaving an entire race of people. And of course, God hears the cries of his people and eventually 
delivers them, but not without a season of discontent, not without a season of pain and suffering and misery. And when you think about it, if you, if you look at human history from Ramses to Nebuchadnezzar to Herod to Attila the Hun to Genghis Khan to Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, and now Putin, such tyrants arise in every century who were ignorant and indifferent to history. And to forget history is to repeat history. Today is a prayer day for us, particularly for our friends in the Ukraine, particularly for women and children and those who are suffering, those who are exiling now into Europe. We're praying for President Zelensky. We're praying for the Russian people that they might rise up to the dictator And yesterday, after our funeral for for Jenny Swafford, Bishop Pennell and I were talking yesterday. He had heard from some of the retired bishops in the United Methodist Church in a call on Friday that there are churches there, Methodist churches in the Nordic and Baltic regions who are opening their facilities and their campuses to these refugees who are streaming out of Ukraine. Indeed, there are United Methodist churches, I found out this morning, in western Ukraine, pastors, Wesleyan pastors who are opening their doors to those who are struggling. And as Laura mentioned, we'll have an opportunity ourselves to contribute, to share with them in their suffering, and certainly through prayer and our gifts. One of the books that I was reading during my study week was a book by John Meacham. Some of you know that name. He is a a citizen of Nashville. He is the canon historian of the Washington National Cathedral. He's a presidential scholar. He's written a book called the American Gospel, in which he quotes Dr. Martin Luther King in one of his sermons who reminded the nation that we are inexorably linked to each other. And this is what Dr. King said. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, and whatever affects one affects all. For some reason, Dr. King says, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Indeed, says Dr. King, this is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured, and ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. Well, I think what's true nationally is true internationally. I think it's true globally that we are inescapably linked together. And maybe that's why Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Maybe that's why Jesus said that the essence of religious commitment is to love God with everything that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, you don't get to choose who your neighbor is. But to do this, it strikes me that there has to be a recentering in our hearts, not on self, not on self-aggrandizement, not on a party or a caucus or a politic, but on him whose nature is love uncontaminated. When we recenter ourselves on Jesus, what happens 
inevitably is that we begin to reflect His goodness. We begin to resemble His grace. In the recentering of our lives, there is a godliness then that arises within us that we remember Joseph, that we remember who we are, that we remember the rock from which we are hewn. That word godliness in the Greek, by the way, is in the text. It's Eusebia. It's no accident that Paul uses that term 10 times in this letter, in six chapters, 10 times. It means reverence, it means respect, it means devotion, it means piety. And true godliness comes not through self-gain, but through self-denial. More than not, it comes through a cross, not a crown. It comes not through promoting self, but in dying to self. After all, if you're here today or online, we welcome you. You are not a religious consumer. You're a disciple of Jesus. Now, I say all that, and I recognize that sometimes, and maybe this is why Paul wrote the letter to a young pastor, sometimes we in the clergy are guilty of using our own vocation, uh, vocation, our own faith, to make a name for ourselves. And when we do that in the clergy, the sanctuary looks a little bit more like the Tower of Babel than the temple of the Lord. Eugene Peterson wrote a book a while back called Under the Unpredictable Plant. This is a book on vocational holiness that is scripted primarily for pastors But it's a must read for all disciples, I think. He uses the Jonah story to talk about his own vocation as a pastor. And there's one section in that book I shared with Laura the other day that is deeply convicting to me. I want to share the quote with you. Somehow, says Dr. Peterson, we American pastors, without noticing what was happening, allowed our vocations to be redefined in terms of American careerism. We quit thinking of the parish as a location for pastoral spirituality and started thinking of it as an opportunity for career advancement. All too often, he writes, we pastors think of ourselves as program directors rather than spiritual directors. Says Peterson, the program director pastor is dominated by the social economic mindset of Darwinism, which means that we are primarily market driven, we are competitive with churches down the road, and it's a survival of the fittest. This is a shift away from God's oriented obedience to career oriented success. It is work at which we gain mastery, position, power, and prestige. But the pastor as spiritual director is actually shaped by the biblical mindset of Jesus, which is worship orientation, which is a servant life, which is sacrifice. This shifts pastoral work from ego addiction to grace freedom. It is work in which we give up control in which we fail, in which we forgive, in which we repent and confess and watch God work. That's what it means to be a pastor, and that's what it means to be a disciple. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul calls it a battle? It is a battle, isn't it? 
He calls it a fight. He calls it a good fight. Fight the good fight. But most of the time, who we're fighting with is ourselves. The line between good and evil runs right in the middle of every heart. And in the case in Ephesus, where Paul and Timothy have been serving, one of the struggles, one of the battles they're facing is an early brand of prosperity gospel. And I want to bring this up and then we'll make our way to the conclusion. There was a notion in that first century church as there is today that godliness and wealth were the same thing. That if you're really devout, if you're really godly and faithful, you'll be rich, and if you're ungodly, you'll be poor. But Paul corrects this notion. In fact, he warns Timothy and the church that this desire for riches may actually plunge us into ruin and destruction. Now, I want to say quickly, there's nothing wrong with making money, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being paid for your work. I can assure you that Paul wasn't giving his tents away. He was charging top shekel for them so that he could continue his ministry. He never said that money is the root of all evil. He said love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in our desire to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I don't remember who said it, but I think it's true that in ancient days, idols were made of wood and straw and metal, and today they're made of money, sex, and power. Jesus said as much about money. You cannot serve God in mammon. Money's a good servant, but it's a poor master. And when money becomes an end in and of itself, you will never make enough, you will never have enough, you will never be content because money can help and can comfort, but money can't buy you love. Money can't buy purpose and meaning and contentment. And this is where Paul at the conclusion of the text says that there is a contentment in godliness that you will never find in material wealth. There is this deep sense of peace there is a deep sense of satisfaction, even sometimes serenity in Christ that is never based on situation or circumstance. And Paul knew it. You remember what he wrote to the Philippians in chapter four, verses 12 and 13. He said, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. I submit to you that this kind of contentment is not something that happens to you. It happens in you because of the presence of Christ. Last word. Some of you may know the name Chaim Patak, who's an American writer who died in 2002. He was a rabbi, wrote a classic book, a bestseller called The Chosen. Dr. Patak once gave a lecture at John Hopkins University in which he told his story. He said, I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a boy. But he said, when I went to college, my mother took me aside and said, Chaim, I know you want to be a writer, 
but I have a better idea. Why don't you be a brain surgeon? You can keep a lot of people from dying and you'll make a lot of money. Chaim replied to his mother, no, mama, I want to be a writer. He said, whenever I return home from school for vacation, holidays, my mother would take me off to the side and say, Chaim, I know you want to be a writer, but listen to your mama. I want you to be a brain surgeon. You can keep a lot of people from dying and you'll make a lot of money. And he replied, no, mama, I want to be a writer. And he said this conversation was repeated every vacation break, every summer, every meeting, whenever he was alone with her. Chaim, I know you want to be a writer, but listen to your mother. Be a brain surgeon. You'll keep a lot of people from dying. You'll make a lot of money. And each time he replied, no, mama, I want to be a writer. And the exchanges accumulated until finally the pressure intensified and there was an explosion at home with mother. Haim, she said, you are wasting your life. You need to be a brain surgeon. You'll keep a lot of people from dying and you'll make a lot of money. And then he said the explosion led to a counter explosion in which he said, Mama, I don't want to keep people from dying. I want to show them how to live. I don't want to keep people from dying as though I could, but I'd really like to show them how to live. And he did. That's why he wrote. <laughs> That's why Paul wrote. That's why you have a Bible. Not for money, not for self-interest, not to keep us from dying, but to show us in the name of Christ how to live. And I don't know what your day job is, but that's your vocation. You don't have to have a bishop to lay his hands on your head to be a disciple, to be a pastor, to be a minister, to be a Christian leader. As Christ followers, as a church, as human beings, we're not to teach people how to make a living, we're to show people how to make a life and how to love uncontaminated as we have been loved to the glory of God. And as we do it, Regardless of what your day job is, you may actually discover your true vocation and you may actually find contentment or perhaps it will find you. In the name of Christ, amen.